Talk about just the, the 12th man and 106,000, second largest crowd in the history of the Let me tell you something. Stadium. That atmosphere and environment tonight, you don't want to play in that, something wrong with you. That, that right there, that, that recruits and the people and the love, I mean, that, that, that's as good an environment and atmosphere as there is in college football, bar none. I don't care where it's at. Those people are behind you, and I'm thankful we won the game for them, and I mean that for our players, for everybody who believes in us, and our, especially our fans, though, because, listen, this, this place deserves a great football team. We're doing everything in our power to make it that way, and we're going to try to get it there. We've got a lot of work to do, and we're growing. But this, this fan base is tremendous, and the atmosphere and environment is the best in college football. Oh, welcome in to the latest episode of that SEC podcast. I'm your host, Michael Braden. I go by SEC Mike on Twitter. And man, do we got a show lined up for you. We've got my buddy Will Miles of the readandreaction.com, one of the best Florida insiders, writers, analysts out there. Really uh, great stuff here from Will. We'll get to it uh, in the second half of the show, went about 30 minutes deep. He is truly one of my favorite Florida writers out there, does a tremendous job over there for the read and reaction and the stand up and holler podcast on youtube gotta check those out there'll be links to those in the show notes but we got week one sec point spreads we got news and notes from alabama a&m and tennessee so let's get on with the show and starting with these uh week one point spreads if you missed it on the last episode go back and watch with cousin shane where we had the sec championship odds for all 14 sec teams courtesy of Caesars Sportsbook. And now we've got week one opening lines from Caesars Sportsbooks. Now, we don't have them for all 14 SEC teams, but we got a bunch of them. And a couple of these brand new, hot off the presses, Alabama, 31-point favorite over Utah State. Honestly, surprise, it's not a little bit higher. I mean, I would think Utah State, we're talking 40, 45-point, 50-point spread. Because Alabama's going to be, at worst, number two in the country right off the bat, if not number one. I expect they'll be number one. So Utah State, hey, maybe maybe they're a little bit better than I thought they were. And that means 31-point spread. <laughs> now, Arkansas-Cincinnati, this is a, a point spread that's been out there already. Arkansas favored by eight at home against uh, Cincinnati that, uh, of course, went to the college football playoff last season. More than a touchdown favorite. Love that line because Arkansas is going to kill Cincinnati. Now, this is what we've talked about at length. There's been a number of point spreads for it, but it keeps changing. Florida hosting Utah, the Pac-12 reigning champions, week one in Gainesville, according to Caesar Sportsbook. This is a pick em. So, coin flip type game. The fact that it's in Gainesville, you got to like the Gators. The fact that they're going to be doubted. Billy Napier, help. I threw this up there. That was the first one a lot of these SEC fans jumped on. Utah's going to boat race the Gators in Florida. Give me a break. Here in Gainesville, in the swamp, in September, early September heat, give me a break with that. Utah going to get run out the building, if you ask me. Now, here's another one we've had for a couple weeks, different lines. Georgia, 15-point favorite over Oregon in the opener in Atlanta. So the dogs holding firm as a two-touchdown favorite. And then how about this? This is the first time I've seen this line. Mississippi State, 11-point favorite in the opener against Memphis. Revenge game right there. So love to see Mississippi State and the Bulldogs, a double-digit favorite at home to open the season. And then another one we've hit on a couple of times here, but 
Just want to give this one out to LSU, three and a half point favorite over Florida State in the opener in New Orleans. So, hey, as soon as we get more lines coming your way, we'll be bringing them to you. And as I sit here and look at these, you know, if there's one that I'm going all in, kind of hit on it already, Florida, I think the pick em factor, man, all they got to do is win by one. You cover this one. I like that. I, I like Alabama 31 minus Utah State. The, the only reason I, do, I would not pick the Alabama one is just right out the gate. Just never know what you're getting with these teams. 31 is a ton of points to lay, but. Again, I, I would anticipate Alabama's going to win by 40, 45, something like that. But you never know. They pull the first string probably at halftime. Second string comes in there for the third quarter. They may have a third and fourth string by the fourth quarter, and Utah State gets you on the back door. So, that, again, I, I like to stay away from those big numbers. But Florida over Utah and a pick them. Alabama minus 31. Those are probably my two favorites on the board if I'm just looking at these week one lines from Caesar Sports. Now, speaking of Alabama, let's kick it on down to Tuscaloosa because we got an interesting nugget here. Roll Tide! Did not see this one coming. And this comes uh, via Bruce Feldman of The Athletic. This is something that Sh Cousin Shane was asking me about on the last episode. Jordan Addison, All-American, the Bolitnikoff winning receiver from Pitt in the transfer portal. This guy caught 100 passes 1,593 receiving yards, 17 touchdowns. These are not his career numbers. These are from just last season. Pitt's number one target, number one receiver in the transfer portal. And, you know, there's all kinds of reports. He's getting millions of dollars to go to Southern Cal and be the latest one to, to join up with uh, Lincoln Riley out there in California. But according to Bruce Feldman, Jordan Addison is training – he is in Southern Cal, which you think, oh, God, that's great news for the Trojans. But he's working out with one Bryce Young, of course, the reigning Heisman Trophy winner, Alabama starting quarterback. So looks like the Crimson Tide are in on this. And we shut down the transfer portal. No more if Alabama gets this guy. <laughs> I'm kidding. But I'm just getting you prepared for the headlines that are coming. Nick Saban owns the transfer portal like he does everything else. So, Hey, I wouldn't be stunned if Jordan Addison does play for Alabama. I got no insight on this one, just sharing what Bruce Feldman is reporting. And he also says Pitt is not out of the mix. He could return to Pitt. That seems very unlikely. New quarterback up there, new offensive coordinator, new receivers coach. If he was happy, he wouldn't have got into the portal unless this is just a money grab. But there is one other wild card here to, to look for when you're talking Jordan Addison. And apparently that's the Texas Longhorns. So... Southern Cal, Pitt, Alabama, Texas. One of those does not <laughs> strike me uh, as in that caliber. And hell, it's uh, it's Alabama being a cut above everybody else. So if Jordan Addison wants to win a national championship, capitalize on some NIL, you got to figure Alabama will be that team. But, you know, we'll see how that goes. They've, they've already added two transfer portal receivers. Let's see if Alabama gets them. Uh, what would be arguably the, the biggest transfer portal target that's not a quarterback in this year's cycle. Now, jumping down to College Station. Giga Maggots. Jimbo Fisher, not actually in College Station, in Houston here on Wednesday. Had a little uh, Texas A&M meeting. He's going around the state speaking to uh, fans and media and whatnot. But 
you know, this is a team that, uh, you know, maybe I'm a little low on them. I got them, what, fifth in my power rankings and, you know, leaning towards Arkansas is a little bit better of a team. But, you know, one thing you cannot argue with Texas A&M is the fact that uh, they are just as loaded as anybody in the country. And that includes Alabama, includes Georgia. They have got the talent to win the SEC, to win it all. Can they put it all together? That's the big question mark that I have for them Aggies and Jimbo Fisher. And at some point, the talent is going to win out. That's why Georgia's been so dominant there in the East. That's why Alabama's been dominant. But it can't all just be the players, though. At at some point, the coaching has got to uh, be a deciding factor here. And that's just the reality of the situation playing in the SEC, and in particular, the SEC West talent will only get you so far. Hell, LSU just had 10 draft picks. They went 6-7 and seven last season. So talent will get you knocking on the door. And that's where Texas A&M is. They are knocking on the door, becoming the elite of the elite in college football. They have got to kick that damn thing in. And how are they going to do it? Jimbo spoke for a little over 20 minutes here. I'm just taking the last part here because I thought it was the best question of the whole thing. You beat Alabama last year, and the year before, you could beat everybody but Alabama. How do you put that all together and become the best Texas A&M you could be and, and turn this thing into a cha- championship contender? Let's kick it over to Jimbo Fisher. Uh, two years ago, y'all beat every team except Alabama. Last year, you beat Alabama. What's, in your mind, the next step, and how close are you to beat just consistency. We didn't finish some games last year. We had chances to make plays. In the Ole Miss game, we got down in the game and didn't have a chance to catch a ball, and we dropped the ball that puts us ahead. Then we gave up a third and ten, didn't, didn't make some plays at the end. Ole Miss, I mean, LSU, we drive down and go ahead. Then we took the punt. It was a fumble. <laughs> they didn't give it to us. Game was over. But then we gave up a drive. They made a drive and hit a pass and, and made plays. you got to finish, and I think we're very close. I mean, you make a couple, we finished the year before. We didn't finish a couple games last year. And we had some turnover early with injuries. Like I say, you lost your quarterback, lost your center, lost your tackle, two of your receivers and two starting corners early in the year. And we didn't adjust well and still had chances to win the Arkansas and, and Mississippi State games. But, you know, you got to play great football. we got to play consistent, do the things we did like we did before. We had a last year, the, two years ago, I thought we were the second best team in this country. I thought we should have been in the playoff, and I'd like to have had one more shot at them. I don't know if we could have beat them. They had a great team. But we were a heck of a team at the end of the year. I thought we deserved – we were the first – that's the first one-loss SEC team that's never been in a playoff or a national championship game in the history since the BCS started, except for Auburn in 2004. Every one of them else. And you have one team win it with two losses, if you go back and look at it. So, I mean, we had a chance to be in there, and we were in a great shape there. But it doesn't matter. you got to do it every year. And last year we still had – even though we were young and injured and some things, and that's, there is no excuses. You have to finish those games. we got to finish more. And, yes, I think we're – we're right there to be able to finish. I think we're a talented team, and I think here's a good thing. You only got 11 seniors on this whole group. There's still only 11 seniors on this football team when you go when you go all the way through it. So there's a chance to have some really good teams, and I think we're just now in our recruiting is hitting another level. We're taking things to a different place. We're perceived differently across the country. People see us as a place that we can win, be very successful, and that's why we're hitting the big-time players in Texas. That's why the national guys are coming here. The guys across the country, they come here and see A&M and what we're doing and what we have a chance to do and the staff that's done it and people who have done it. And they know we can coach, recruit, play, and we have good facilities. And we also have a life after ball for them with the 12th man. And they see where we're at. And I think we have a chance to have a really good program from here on out. And we have to finish those games and play. So the one thing, though, I don't, I didn't care for Jimbo's answer here. And, hey, this is, this is, 
you could say this is unfair because uh, I'm not disagreeing necessarily with the issues that he's referencing here, but I think he's got to shoulder a little bit more blame himself because there were some games last year where, you know, I thought the, you know, questionable play calling and, you know, it's, it's his damn job to get these quarterbacks ready and to get the backups ready. And these are his guys now. He's been there long enough. So I don't care for these excuses, but again, everything he's saying, there's truth to it. It's time for them to put it all together there in College Station. We're, we're running thin on uh, seasons where we can have four losses. We just, with the talent we've assembled, you talk of these analytics guys, Texas A&M, hell, we just had Jake Wimberly on the show, says this is an 11-win team. Dave Barr, two CFB Matrix, is saying the same thing. Adam McClintock, the CFB professor, you know, he has not put out his projections yet, but I can tell you he's going to have A&M 10-11, 12-win program they have the talent they've got to put it all together consistency according to Jimbo is going to be the key there this season in College Station now last thing before we get to our interview with Will Miles of uh, the read and reaction this is what we were hitting at on the last episode with Cousin Shane Tennessee officially lands Brew McCoy the receiver from Southern Cal former five-star prospect in the 2019 recruiting cycle and he's had a weird journey man I mean he I believe if I if I have this timeline right, he committed to USC and then he flipped late to Texas, enrolled at Texas, and then about a month in said, hell, I want to go back to USC Southern Cal. Goes back, he had to sit out a year. And then his first year on the field was the COVID season. You know, hell, they, they don't they only played about five or six games there in his true freshman year. He got 21 passes, 236 yards, two touchdowns. Again, in six games, he was playing with uh, some future NFL receivers. He was buried on the depth chart, but still making plays for the Trojans. And then last season, he didn't play at all. I think he had some kind of charges that were later dismissed. So you don't really know what you're getting in Brew McCoy. He's a very, very physical player. 24-7 sports rates Brew McCoy as the number two overall prospect in the transfer portal. So it should give you an idea, if you're a Tennessee fan, of what your expectation level should be. But again, this is a guy that's, uh, you know, he's not really put it all together and done it on the field. But they've had quarterback issues at Southern Cal. They've had serious coaching issues at Southern Cal. Now he's going into a Tennessee program with an elite play caller, an elite quarterback, and here's the beauty of it. Brew McCoy doesn't even need to be your number one because you got Cedric Tillman, who's likely going to be a preseason All-American on the outside. You just need him to be an outstanding number two. And we may be cooking with something here in Knoxville with uh, all these receivers and, and weapons Hendon Hooker's got surrounding him there on Rocky Top. So, you know, this could be a huge, huge pickup for Tennessee. They can get the most out of Brew McCoy. This may be the most underrated pickup yet of the offseason in the SEC. And the Vols may not be done just yet either because former Central Florida receiver Jalen Robinson set to visit Tennessee for an official visit. Robinson left Central Florida this offseason via the transfer portal. Didn't have a great season playing in Gus Malzahn's offense, but in 2020, Josh Heupel's last year down there at UCF, 55 catches, 979 yards, and six touchdowns. So Jalen Robinson, 
This uh, news was first reported by, let's give this guy a shout out, Matthew Ray, Sports Illustrated, friend of the show. So credit Matt for uh, landing this news. But Jalen Robinson, maybe add him to the offense. I mean, my goodness, how many receivers could Tennessee have next season? And hey, they ain't going to turn any down, particularly one like Robinson who's played in Josh Heupel's system, knows it, can come in immediately and play. I should have mentioned, Brew McCoy's got three years of eligibility remaining. I believe Robinson's got two. So these aren't necessarily one-and-done players either. Uh, But, man, just when we thought Tennessee was going to have a lethal offense, it may be getting significantly better with all these transfer portal additions. Right, hey, I teased it enough. Let's get to our interview with Will Miles of readandreaction.com. He truly does just outstanding work over there, breaking down the Florida Gators, Billy Napier's program. And, you know, he doesn't sugarcoat things either. So he's got some interesting insights and observations from Florida following the spring. I think Gator fans in particular, you're really going to love this. All right, hey, we're pleased to be once again joined by Will Miles, who you can give him a follow at Will Miles SEC, and he writes for the readandreaction.com. He's got an outstanding YouTube channel. You got to check out Stand Up and Holler. It's also a part of the Read and Reaction. And of course, he participates in got to be the best Gators YouTube show out there besides Stand Up and Holler, the Gators Breakdown with Gator Dave. Will, thank you so much for joining me. I, I really appreciate you. Uh, thanks for having me. I, you know, stand up and holler. We're just trying to sort of approximate what Gator Dave does over there at Gators Breakdown. It's fun to be a part of that. Fun to be a part of this world, really. And uh, you know, it's always fun talking about college football, even if it is just May. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, before we hopped on, we were talking about you know just the excitement and the energy with Gator Nation with Billy Napier, um, and it you know a big part of that Anthony Richardson. So you know, you wrote about it at uh, Read and Reaction. Just he's the clear starter. You know, if, if that's that's got to be the biggest takeaway from spring in Billy Napier's first spring down there in Gainesville. Um, what type of season do you think Anthony Richardson will have this fall as as being the go to man down there for the Florida Gators? Yeah, I mean, I think he's going to have a good season comparative to Emory Jones. So Florida's offense last year was a little bit weird. So they were like, I think, 61st in points per game, but they were 21st in yards per play, which suggests they were able to move the ball. They just couldn't really cash it in when they got into the red zone. And a lot of that has to do with when the field shrinks, your quarterback has to make quicker decisions. And Emory Jones really struggled with that. He struggled with whether he was supposed to keep the ball in a read option and, and, you know, getting the ball out to his receivers once they finally had a little bit of separation. And I think Richardson has shown both in the spring game, but also last year, particularly in the LSU game, that he will get the ball out a little bit quicker. He'll make a quick decision. Now, sometimes those decisions aren't good decisions. He did have five interceptions last year in relatively limited numbers of throws, but his red zone numbers were outstanding. His QB rating was up around 300 in the red zone compared to Emory Jones, who was like 180. And if you remove the Samford game where he had, you know, I think six touchdowns, then his red zone rating went down to like 120. Um, so I think that's the big difference. And, and the question will be, can the Florida offense sort of sustain what they were able to do last year between the 20s and then cash it in the red zone? I suspect Richardson is going to do better at that. I don't think, you know, anybody like betting on him for the Heisman, that, that's a long-term or, a, you know, that's that's one of those fool bets where you put five bucks on it and ho- hopefully it turns out at the end. But, you know, I don't think he's going to be that good. But I think an approximation of what Felipe Franks was able to do through the air in 2018 after Dan Mullen took over is a reasonable approximation for what you'll get through the air. 
and he's explosive on the ground. Like, you know, anybody looking at his stats against power five runner, when he was running, he had a torn meniscus. He'd also injured his knee while, you know, he'd further injured his knee while, while, while dancing supposedly in, in the hotel. And he had, he had pulled his hamstring there in the second or third game on, you know, an 80 yard run. If he's fully healthy and he's able to run the ball, then that's a huge asset to Florida's offense. And I think really where the differentiator lies. Now, I'm glad you, you referenced the, uh, you know, the dancing and getting hurt and all that, because uh, over at read and reaction, you talked about Richardson also, you know, getting uh, a speeding ticket for going fast. I mean, that, I think a lot is made of, of stuff like this. I know I only say it cause you wrote it. I mean, you, you've been tagged for that. I've been tagged for, multiple speeding tickets when I was a young man. I drive slow as can be now, but back then, so I don't judge these guys. That's not the point. I don't want to harp on that, but do you think Anthony Richardson is ready to be the face of the offense, the face of the program? And is it fair for fans to expect that when he's not really had to do that yet? I mean, this is the first time in his career where he's being put on that pedestal, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, I think if anything, the, the game against Georgia last year where Mullen finally gave him his first start against Georgia and then just sort of face planted, I think that maybe prepares him for what's coming up this year. You know, he's not going to be immune to criticism. He's not, you know, he, he's been exposed to that sort of stuff. He went through the negativity that that ran through the program pretty rampantly last year, um, a, especially after that Georgia game, the, the negativity really ramped up. And, you know, so he's not going to be surprised by the level of vitriol if there's a loss or if he doesn't play well. And he, the, the big thing I think that that you really see when you turn on the tape for Richardson or when you when you sort of listen to him talk is he doesn't seem to be afraid of making a mistake. And I think oftentimes you look at quarterbacks who are sort of game managers and they're afraid of making mistakes. And if you get the same number of if you get the same percentage of explosive plays out of Anthony Richardson next year, I think Florida's going to be really happy again. I mean. I don't think Florida's in the class of Georgia. I don't think Florida's in the class of Alabama. I don't think Florida's probably in the class of Texas A&M. The question is, are you going to beat the Kentuckys and the Missouris and, you know, the South Carolinas of the world? And that's, I think, how you're going to gauge the 2022 season, at least. And in fact, in some ways, I kind of don't want Anthony Richardson to be Heisman level in 2022 because I want him back in 2023 when the roster has a little bit more depth. Yeah, and another guy I wanted to ask you about exiting the spring. This is uh, someone that you mentioned on uh, your latest appearance on Gators Breakdown, but Montreal Johnson, the new running back, you came away impressed with him. Uh, what is it about uh, uh, Florida's new running back that you like so much? Well, I mean, he's a transfer from Louisiana, so he certainly knows the program, or at least knows the offense that Napier's going to be trying to run. Um, it's a whole new blocking scheme for Florida. It's a zone blocking scheme. It's always been, you know, man-to-man, -man, a lot of pulling guards on the offensive line for Dan Mullen. And in fact, he would have guards pulling as sort of a play action for, for plays where they were going to throw the ball. Napier's not going to do that. It's going to be a lot of zone blocking schemes where the running back has to put his foot in the ground, one cut, a la the Denver Broncos back when Terrell Davis was the running back. Or if you think about like the San Francisco 49ers offense or the, the Los Angeles Rams offenses, those are sort of the offenses that Billy Napier has kind of built his foundation around. And Johnson is familiar with that. I don't think he's going to be some giant explosive difference maker, but I think he knows what he's supposed to do in the offense. And I think that's a significant thing considering that, you know, Florida had Malik Davis last year. They had Damian Pierce Davis, you know, signed as an undrafted free agent. Pierce got drafted in the NFL draft. You know, Naquan Wright got hurt. So out of the three guys who were there last year, now you're looking at guys like Demarcus Bowman, Lorenzo Lingard and Johnson, 
stepping in. And Johnson's the only guy who's a proven, who's a proven college football entity at this point, really. And so that's the thing he brings more than anything is that if you talked about ceiling and floor, I think you would say that Lingard and Bowman probably have higher ceilings than Montreal Johnson. But I think Johnson really, really solidifies Florida's running back position where it's got a pretty high floor and you're not going to be disappointed by the running back play. You just may not be wowed by it. Now, one of the other things you hit on over at uh, the Read and Reaction, we'll put this uh, a link to this article in the show notes because you do such a great job with these these breakdowns and this analysis. You do your research, and it's about the bump class and why that's so critical if you're trying to build an SEC champion like Billy Napier is trying to do down there in Gainesville. Uh, can, can you give us some insight into the, the bump class, what that term is for, for people that may not be familiar? And Florida fans, I think, I've seen some, you know, they're, they're a little, um, I don't want to say upset, but they're just wondering where, when are these commits going to be happening? I know right before we hopped on, they just landed one, but I believe the Gators only have three right now. Uh, and you also wrote about why you're not hitting the panic button just yet uh, on this recruiting class. Well, not yet, but the days are going by pretty <laughs> quick. And, and so here's the deal. Whenever you hire a new coach, the most important recruiting class for that coach is his second class. And, you know, so my, my colleague, Bill Sykes dubbed that the bump class and I'm sure other people call it that as well, but Bill did a great job on reading reaction a couple of years ago, looking at sec championship coaches and what you needed. And essentially those guys were all getting like three, five-star recruits. They were top five in the country, top two in the conference or top three in the conference on average. And, the thinking is, is that in your transition class, you get hired, it's December, or, you know, it's either early, late November, early December, you're trying to put together a class for early signing day, you're just scrambling to sort of build that class, you can't expect that much out of that recruiting class. By the time you get to that next year, there's two things going for you. One, you've had a full year to build relationships. And the other thing that's going for you is that no one can negatively recruit against you because you haven't done anything on the field yet. Right. So it's all hope. It's all, it's all, you know, unicorns and rainbows. And so it's your best opportunity to convince people to buy into your vision without having to prove anything. And it really, in, in most respects, I think is a testament to a coach's ability to sell or an inability to sell. And so what you saw back in 2019 for Florida is that Dan Mullen didn't see much of an increase in his overall ranking. I think they went from like 14th to ninth or something in terms of you know his, his transition class to his bump class. And what, were, what the expectation for Napier is he was what, 16th this past year for his first class, his transition class, the expectation for his bump class, he's gonna have to be top five. He's gonna need three five-star recruits. Like that's what's necessary to win not just in the SEC, but especially in the SEC, but nationally as well. And there's a reason why we see Georgia and Alabama and Ohio State and Clemson and all those teams up there at the top. Now, Clemson, Clemson has done things a little bit differently because they, they built with some five-star quarterbacks who sort of allowed them to have some, I don't want to say middling classes, but not necessarily elite classes. But for the ACC, they were top two in the conference. In the SEC, to be top two, you have to be the second-ranked national class every year. <laughs> and so it's just a different level there. So, so that's, that's where you have to be. Now, as far as where Napier is right now, you know, the, the, if you go back and look historically at different coaches in their transition classes, even Nick Saban back in 2008, his transition class is essentially why Alabama was able to dominate. I think they wound up with like nine or 10 all SEC players out of that class out of 20, 25 or 26 guys he signed. But the timing of that is essentially right about the time the summer ends 
is where you kind of know what the quality of the class will be. That doesn't mean the entire class is filled out, but it means say, if you've got 10 recruits and you need a top three class, the top three class, typically the players rank around 93 or 94 on 24 seven sports rankings. Well, that's where your average needs to be for those 10 or 11 guys that you've got at the end of the summer. And then you sort of fill it out with guys who are about that same level. The only example I could find where that didn't really happen was urban Meyer back in 2006 he had four guys. He had a pretty high ranking for those four guys. That's all he had until like November, December. And then all of a sudden it was like a tidal wave of people coming in. So I I think, especially with early signing day and with NIL, that stuff's going to happen basically at the end of the summer. And so that's when I think anybody should really be evaluating their school's recruiting classes is, you know, April, May, June, you're like, all right. Like the, you know, I think right now Notre Dame has the number one class, but Texas Tech is up there pretty high, but that's because they've got like 22 recruits who've already committed. And so that's fool's gold, right? That's going to drop down in terms of overall ranking. The thing for Florida that you, if you're a Florida fan, what you want, what you don't want to see is like three, four, five, three-star guys committing to the program, because then what that means is you're going to have to hit on every single guy downstream to bring that overall ranking up. And, you know, Mullen sort of showed us that that didn't work real well. McElwain showed us that beforehand as well. So um, that that's the thing is I think basically by the time they kick off against Utah, you'll know whether Napier is able to sell without showing things on the field. And, you know, that that's, that's when we'll start to evaluate it. Now I gotta ask any anyone I have on that this guy's somewhat connected to because that's, that's all everybody wants to talk about. Arch Manning and the Florida Gators have is there still a glimmer of hope there with uh, with Billy Napier or it, has that ship sailed? Do you think? No, nah, I think that ship's probably sailed. I, I think Manning is. Uh, um... You know, the, the reality is, is that the, the places he's considering Florida was probably um, sort of late to arrive at the party. And I'm assuming that the relationships probably didn't get built quite as strongly as you would. And to be honest, I don't know that Manning is the best fit for what Napier's going to do. You get these, you know, the two tight end offense that Napier's going to going to implement for the most part. I think he's going to be able to do some unique stuff with that at Florida with some of the athletes that he's going to end up bringing in. But I think if you're Arch Manning and you sort of want to be prepared for the NFL, I'm not necessarily sure that that's where you go right off the bat, right? You can go someplace else where there's a more established sort of where you're not transitioning from one offensive system to another and probably have more success. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, but we're also in the era of NIL and I don't know that anybody knows what's going to happen over the next six months with the money that's flowing, all the different information that's going on. And there, there's, there was some stuff coming out today about some schools that are trying to sort of discourage their boosters from actively actively getting in contact with players because the laws do dictate that you can't give NIL money in exchange for a commitment or, you know, it can't be pay for play. So all these collectives and the way they've been built up and all that sort of stuff, you know, look, I have no idea what's going to happen in in that particular capacity because, you know, Florida got beat out for a recruit a couple of weeks ago who by, by Miami. And it's pretty clear from all the rumors and the reporting that Miami basically upped an offer at the end. And that's what, that's what, you know, made, made the guy commit to Miami, but he was a three-star recruit and like it was a commit or a transfer actually like right around 725th ranked nationally when he came out of high school and based on my numbers in terms of how often those guys go to the nfl i don't think those guys are really all that valuable from a monetary perspective or what it really so you know it'll be really interesting to see how people decide to value different guys you know do you go splurge and overspend on guys who maybe aren't necessarily worth the money on a on a 
on a star basis because you need to fill out your roster with guys you think you've evaluated well and sort of target three stars who fit your system? Or do you go and spend all that money on a guy like Arch Manning to bring him in? I don't know how people are going to do this. And quite honestly, I think there's going to be such a difference in war chests between the different between the different entities and how they're able to use them that, uh, you know, it's just sort of the wild west at this point. Nobody really knows how it's going to shake out. Yeah. It's interesting. You go to NIL. Cause I, w- I wanted to ask you about that in Florida's approach to it from the outside looking in, it, it appears to me like, I know, you know, that they've got their own collective and they're doing well with that raising money, but it seems like they're focusing it on, on the players that are currently on the team and not as a, an, an, an inducement of recruiting, like, which we know is illegal, but hey, that ain't stopping a lot of other schools. So uh, am I accurate in that assessment? And, and do you think Florida uh, is choosing the right path here in the, in the wild, wild west of NIL? So, I mean, I think, so Florida set up the Gator Collective right when, really kind of right when NIL was announced. And the idea of the collective was to, build nil opportunities for the different players and those players are interacting with the fans so there's a lot of content that's coming out to fans in exchange for the money these guys are getting from the gator collective and and that's that's essentially how that organization seems to be operating and i I can't claim to be on the inside or know a lot of the details about how that goes but the point is is that it's actually targeted specifically at players who are already there as opposed to as an inducement you can show players who are coming in hey this is what we do but you know i don't think they're making offers the other thing is is that this gator guard was just announced maybe last week and that's that's something where they got a bunch of high rolling boosters who brought in a bunch of money they'd raised five or six million dollars as of last week for that particular entity they sort of partnered with the gator guard and i think that's probably more of the wing that's going to be tied towards you know contracts you know the athletic had something with a contract a few weeks ago where they were showing you know it guaranteed certain money in exchange for NIL rights, but did not dictate what school someone was going to go to in the particular contract. I think those are the types of things that are going to be coming. But um, I think it's going to be fascinating to see because, you know, depending. So I think Bryce Young, you know, Nick Saban mentioned last year that he was already making a million dollars. And a lot of people scoffed at it. We're like, that's not really possible. But I think if you look at the, depending upon the size of the war chest, the number one overall player in the country is well worth a million dollars based on you know if you've got a 10 million dollar budget for players the first 15 are probably worth over a million and then it drops off pretty precipitously from there um, just in terms of the probability of those guys really turning out so I don't know right I I just don't I, I think Florida focusing on its own players is fine for now because they feel like they're being taken care of and you're building a culture where people want to stay for an extended period of time but I'd be really surprised if the NIL rules are the exact same two or three years from now as they are right now so I think more than anything it's an optimization problem and every time there's a change in the rule it's it's sort of like uh if you think about baseball for years there were guys where they'd bring them up three weeks into the season because they would get an extra year out of them if they kept them in the minors for too long. And that was like a way to get an edge. And I think that's kind of what's going to end up happening with NIL with some of these programs that have a lot of money is they're all going to be searching for little edges in different places so that they can sort of, um, so that they can dominate. Now, the one thing that may end up being a benefit out of this though is smaller schools are going to have the ability to go in and maybe outbid the bigger schools for say that top tier player who would never go there. And you think about like Virginia tech back in 1999 with Michael Vick, 
that was it was a good defense. In fact, you might even say a great defense, but that was built on the backs of, you know, low four-star guys, high three-star guys. You bring in Michael Vick, and all of a sudden it's a team that can compete for a championship. So those are the types of things you might actually see where, you know, Florida's not in that, that circumstance, obviously. But, you know, Tennessee just got a big commit from a five-star quarterback. And is it possible that he's going to be able to lift the Vols to a level they haven't been in a real long time just because they get elite play at that position? It's entirely possible. Yeah, just about every uncommitted five-star has got Tennessee on the list for a reason at the moment. But uh, I wanted to ask you, I don't know if you saw this, Will, but uh, the win bet out of Las Vegas, they've set the over-under for the Florida Gators this season at seven wins. What do you think on that number? Uh, is that about where you'd put it? Or uh, I don't know, what are, you, what are your thoughts on that? So Florida, it's, it's sort of a boomer bust bet because Florida has zero depth. And so if they start suffering injuries, especially on like the defensive line, there's, there's no depth to speak of. So if a guy like Gervon Dexter gets dinged or, or God forbid gets hurt pretty seriously and can't play, there's nobody, there's nobody with a track record to put there at the defensive line and Florida couldn't stop the run last year. So, you know, you sit there and go, okay, well, are they actually gonna be able to stop it this year? Um, but Gervon Dexter is really good player and you're going to have a brand new scheme from Patrick Tony. I think everybody expects that to be an upgrade on Todd Grantham. So the upside for Florida, I think is pretty significant. I'm not talking Alabama or Georgia upside, but certainly second in the East is a distinct possibility winning nine or 10 games and, and being able to go to a pretty good bowl game on the converse of that is Anthony Richardson couldn't stay healthy last year in very limited reps. And I think the offense is going to be predicated on having Richardson be healthy. Jack Miller, if he has to play a game or two, the transfer from Ohio state, I think can keep him sort of afloat. But if Miller has to play five or six games, then you're going to have a situation where I think Florida is going to struggle. I don't think that Florida fans should be all that worried about what the record is in 2022. In fact, I'd be far more worried about where they, where they stand in the recruiting when it comes to that 2023 recruiting class, but yeah, I think seven's a good number because it's either boom or bust. But I don't, I don't think they're, I don't think it's going to push, right? I think, I think you're sitting at nine or you're sitting below seven just based on what ends up happening on the injury front. And then certainly, if other teams take a step up, I mean, you know, Tennessee had a great offense last year. The defense is pretty terrible. If they can make a, if they can make a, you know, make significant progress on the defensive side of the ball, then maybe that squeezes Florida out of out of second in the East. But I think that's what their sort of target is this year. If you were to ask me what's my goal coming into the season for Florida, I'd say second in the East and give Georgia a good game as opposed to, you know, getting blown out of the, getting blown out of the water like they have a few times the last few years. All right, last thing for you, Will. I really appreciate all your time. Something you hit on during uh, your appearance on Gators Breakdown, I, I thought it was interesting, may not exactly be what Florida fans want to hear, but I think you're on to something. And it, you basically were saying, you know, if Billy Napier's program suffers, uh, you know, not a disastrous season or anything, but you, the example you use is Nick Saban losing the Iron Bowl his first year, losing to, uh, what was it, Louisiana Monroe, and you're thinking, oh, my God, can Nick Saban still coach? Well, it certainly seemed like that motivated the guys going into year two. They went to the SEC championship. So, I think he figured it out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So can you kind of rehash that for us of, of why – you know, a, a, a subpar season, let's call it, for Florida may not uh, be doom and gloom there. Yeah, I mean, you know, you look back at Jim McElwain, he won 10 games his first year, got to the SEC championship game. You look at Dan Mullen, he won 10 games his first year, and Florida sort of – Florida won a bunch of close games his first year, and the season sort of turned around in a weird game against South Carolina where they fell way behind, sort of got a gift – 
reception on a, on a play that should have been an interception. All of a sudden they were off to the races, won four or five straight games, boat race Michigan. And now everybody's feeling good about themselves coming into the off season. But the problem with that sort of thing is, is then you haven't really felt the pain in the new era. Right. So everybody buys into Mullen says, yeah, Mullen's, you know, Mullen changes things around from the terrible season in 2017 to a pretty good season in 2018. And everybody says, yeah, we're on our way. We don't need to work as hard. Right. And I think, you know, Saban was same as Saban's famous for like putting, you know, for, for motivating his team based on the slights that they have. In fact, they're one of the Saturday down South ESPN, uh, documentaries showed Greg McElroy. And when they got to the second SEC championship game there in 2009, they had been playing the Florida defense on Alabama scout team the entire year <laughs> because Saban and said, we're not going to get beat by that defense again. And, and McElroy goes out and plays really well in that game. So I think there's value to losing so long as the losing is done in, in building culture and building determination building grit. And so, you know, sometimes building grit means holding in there and, and holding the line and finding a way to win the game. But sometimes building that grit, it's a multi-year process. And, you know, I, I think if you can there was an article in the athletic late last year that sort of detailed Florida and all the opposing coaches were calling them soft. And there's nothing you can call, <laughs> there's nothing you can call a football player that's worse than calling them soft. And they called them soft. They called them undisciplined. They called them all sorts of different things from the opposing coaches in the conference. And that's how Florida was perceived. And so I think the challenge for Napier beyond just the roster construction issues and the lack of recruiting that they, that Florida's seen over the last five or six years and all those sorts of things is just making sure that these guys don't accept being soft. And that might mean, that you got to prove to them that when they go out and they're soft, they're going to get beat. And that when they go out there and they're not disciplined, they're going to get beat. And sometimes the loss teaches you more than the win. And I think Florida got a little bit lucky that first year in 2018 to win a few games. Maybe they shouldn't have. And you sit there and say, if they were seven and six and they were, you know, winning the Birmingham bowl, as opposed to going to the, to the cotton bowl and beating Michigan, do they go into that off season differently, right? Does it look differently? Is there a different buy-in? Um, does the culture shift? because the culture had clearly become pretty toxic by the end of Mullen and Grantham's era there. Um, that's the challenge, right? I mean, Scott Strickland has said specifically, he wants Billy Napier to build this program long-term. And so, you know, you see this all the time in different sports where, um, you know, especially in professional sports where you take steps back, right? You tank to get that number one draft pick to build the culture you need, those sorts of things um, in order to get better. And I don't think you have to do that in college football. Obviously you don't have to tank, but if, if you, if you, if you asked me, would I rather have a loss in 2022, but have a tougher team? I'd say, yeah, we'll take the loss. Now, with all that said, I still expect Florida to come out. I, I think Florida is going to give Utah a pretty good game. And that's going to kind of be the bellwether for the season. Um, you know, we'll see. I think Utah is going to be a real good team, but I think Florida is going to be better than people expect, especially early on when they don't have any injuries. I think it's when you get to week five, week six, week seven, where that toughness is really going to start to come into play. Right. I mean, a guy with a, a guy who's dinged, is he going to be out there playing is, and is he going to be able to play as hard as he needs to? Um, Cause there isn't any depth behind him. Those will sort of be the questions for the year. Yeah. You talk about that Utah opener and then week two, Kentucky, Kentucky may be the favorite in that game, which ooh, good luck with that. Because I don't think Gator fans, Gator team, I don't think anyone's going to take kindly to that, but Hey, maybe that's a topic for a different day. 
He's Will Miles. Give him a follow at Will Miles SEC. Check out all his work at thereadandreaction.com. And don't forget to check out the YouTube channel, Stand Up and Holler. You can find links to all this in the show description. Thank you so much, Will. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Mike. I appreciate it. It's fun. Yeah, no doubt. All, all right. right. So just want to say thanks again to Will for joining the show and just providing some truly outstanding insight here into Billy Napier's program. And again, you can find links to follow Will on Twitter and some of his work there at the Read and Reaction and the Stand Up and Holler podcast on YouTube. You can find all of that in the show notes. So, hey, that's all I got on this episode of the show. I truly appreciate each and every one of you keeping the lights on here. The more people we get to watch this thing, to listen to the podcast, uh, the longer we can do it in the offseason. I'm, I'm scraping and I'm fighting and clawing to try to get content here in the offseason. I think these are... You know, some of the, I think this is some pretty good stuff here considering the, the time of the year it is in the SEC. And I've got one more idea that I think, uh, you know, all SEC fans will appreciate to close out the week. So four podcasts here in the first week of May. Can't beat it. Can't beat it for an SEC show. So if you appreciate all this content, begging and pleading here, give us that five-star written review on the Apple Podcast app. And we also are accepting reviews on spotify if you maybe you're not an apple user you're an android user you can write it rate us on spotify and for each and every one of you that gives us a rating we send you a beer koozie free of charge you just got to send those reviews on over to that sec podcast at gmail.com but that's going to do it for this episode of the show we'll catch you on the next one